November 21st, 2018, Governor Brown commuted my sentence. And I, I give a lot of it to the podcast because I know when I walked in there to hear that my sentence was commuted, you know, once they got the, the legalities out the way, the next thing was, we love the podcast, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of On Assignment. That was Erlon Woods, co-creator and co-producer of the 2021 DuPont Award-winning podcast series, Ear Hustle. It's an up-close and personal look at life behind bars at San Quentin Prison. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of the Prizes Department at Columbia Journalism School, and I'm joined today once again by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So it's been a big week here at DuPont because we've just announced the 2022 DuPont finalists, which you can learn all about uh, if you just go to our website, DuPont.org. And I think it was right around this time last year that we were talking to both Erlon and his co-producer and co-creator, Nigel Poor, to tell them that they'd won the 2021 DuPont and then to hear about how their groundbreaking series came about. Ear Hustle tells stories about daily life inside San Quentin Prison and the lives of incarcerated people in their own words. And Lisa, I have to tell you up front, I'm a huge fan. This remarkable podcast shatters a lot of the myths around incarceration and brings a lot of humanity and heart to these stories. It doesn't shy away from the hard realities, but also engages and even entertains listeners. It's compelling. It's emotional. And it's also even sometimes funny, which is because life is funny no matter where you are. Plus, it reveals a side of American life that's cut off from the rest of society and one that journalists often struggle to cover. Over the years, I've actually done a lot of reporting from inside of prisons myself, and I know firsthand how hard it can be to get the real scoop. So Nigel Poor is an artist who met Erlon Woods when volunteering in the prison. Erlon was incarcerated there under California's Three Strikes Law. Since then, his sentence has been commuted, and the podcast network PRX hired him to produce the show full-time, which is a whole story that you'll hear about. But two of the other hosts of the show, Antoine Williams and Rasan Thomas, a.k.a. New York, are still inside. And unfortunately, at the time we recorded our interview to let them know they won, Antoine and New York were on lockdown because of COVID and couldn't join. Yes, Erlan and Nigel, we're so excited to share the good news with them. Um, Our interview with them covers a range of topics like what the reaction to the show has been inside and outside the prison, what it's like telling stories from an environment as restrictive and highly politicized as prisons. But we start at the beginning, which it was a little emotional. And two notes about our conversation. A warning, we talk about some tough subjects, including sexual abuse. And you'll hear references to correctional officers, prison guards. They're referred to as COs. So without further ado, this is our edited conversation with Ear Hustle's Nigel Poor and Erlon Woods. We have a little bit of news, and that is that you have been named a winner of the DuPont Awards 2021. Congratulations. Oh, 
That's that's that's, oh, that's definitely speechless there. Um, thank wow. You. Thank you. That's amazing. Oh, you over there crying, Nigel. <laughs> well, it's just been such a hard year and there's so many things that are, are tough. So to get good news like this is extra special. And um, I can't wait to share it with our partners inside San Quentin, who we haven't been able to see for eight months now. Um, usually when we talk to them on the phone, it's because we're desperately trying to get them to do something we need inside. And this time we're going to be able to share good news with them. So it's going to be a huge present. So tell us the origin story. And it's so, I have to just say, I, as a fan, it's a thrill really to me to see you guys. Oh, I don't mind to call you Nige. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so I started going into the prison as a volunteer in 2011, teaching a history of photography class and through the Prison University Project. And I just got very interested in what was happening inside the prison. And I wanted to figure out a way to do storytelling about, somehow to, to tell stories about life in prison. And I heard about the Media Lab in San Quentin. And so I started volunteering down there. And that's where I met Erlon, I think 2013. And what is the Media Lab? Do you want to describe the Media Lab? The Media Lab is it's a nice like little warehouse space. When I was in another prison, I was in um, Sentinel State Prison, I was watching TV and I seen that they had the San Quentin Film School, and that's what made me want to get to San Quentin because they had a media lab. It's a place where you have the San Quentin newspaper, San Quentin TV, and we were part of the San Quentin Radio Project. I have to laugh that you're saying it's a nice space because, yes, there were nice things about it, but it was the old um, laundry room. Laundry room, yeah. Yes, and so when we were recording, a lot of times you would hear the pipes in the background. Sometimes the ceiling would leak. Water would get, water would come in. Sometimes there'd be birds flying around. So it was. I think it for me it was nice because there was so much creativity going on down there. There were so many people working. So when I first met Erlon, Erlon and myself and a couple other guys decided to start doing an audio project, and the idea was to play stories inside the prison. And we were trying to learn how to do this. And then a local radio station KALW heard about what we were doing. And they decided to help us and they sent volunteers in to help train us. And we started producing stories for a show they did called Cross Currents. And I think that started in 2013 and around, around, yeah, around yes. then. So it's very news oriented and the episodes were like three to eight minutes long. And I really enjoyed it, but I found myself wanting to do something very different, something that would be longer form storytelling. We could use sound design and, um, so I gotten to know Erlon, I really liked him, and I asked him if he was interested. What do you think? Should we break off and think about doing a podcast? And immediately he said... What is a podcast, Nigel? First you said yes. First you said yes, he would do it. And then you asked, but what's a podcast? Definitely, definitely. I was like, yeah, we could do it. Because I mean, of course I trusted her. I trusted her vision. But then the idea was we were going to do these stories and play them on the closed circuit station in the prison. We weren't even thinking about playing it outside the prison. That was the big goal. And Lieutenant Robinson, who you hear on the podcast... Um, who's the public information officer at San Quentin, was supportive. He said, you know, go ahead, do this. Um, we started working on it, and then I heard about Radiotopia's PodQuest contest from, uh, from PRX. Out of uh, 1,536 other teams in 53 different countries, um, mm -hmm. our one-minute and 56-second submission made it to the top 10. Yeah. 
and and once we made it to the top ten, we actually won. Yeah. Nigel was over there doing backflips. I couldn't believe. I mean, I, obviously, I I could not believe that we won. And as Erlon said, then we really had to figure out how to do this. And um, the thing that was kind of surprising was it was easier for us to get the podcast played outside the prison than inside the prison. Right. I mean, getting buy-in from a prison administration to do something like this, that must have been, that must have been some work. It was a lot of work. And when, so, I mean, it was work on both of our sides and I'll, I can talk about what I had to do and Erlang can talk about his side of it. But when I started knowing that I wanted to spend more time in the prison, I made it my business to get to know the administration and for them to get to know me and to build trust. And that took a couple of years. Um, and it, it was imperative without that, that there was no way it was going to happen. Um, and I mean, I always tell that to anyone who wants to do work in prison, it, forget your schedule, forget what you think time means. You are operating on someone else's system and you, you just have to understand that you've got to be really patient. Um, but it was really getting to know people. It was always showing up and always doing exactly what I said I was going to do. Um, and I think it's the same for the guys inside to, to earn the trust. Definitely. I think, I, think, I think pretty much San Quentin is one of those rare prisons where you get the opportunity to do something. And, and because long before we were there, again, I got there because of the uh, San Quentin Film School. And that was approved by a person that was in the headquarters. I think it was Terry Thornton. Um, and so from that point, it was like, to me, it was open, and I think when Nigel came and we did the radio, uh, I think they really, really trusted her because she handled it in a professional manner. You know, she was really like on it, like it was no BS. And 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 and, and, and to make it simple, it was no BS, and she she kept it uh, really professional, and um, that's why I believe they trusted us to do what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, that was always our goal is with the podcast is to set up a professional experience inside the prison where. The, you know, there were demands that had to be met. There was professional protocol. Um, there was no different than working in an office outside, except it was in a prison. And we just had, we, we did have, and we still have really high standards of behavior and, and professional practice. And that, that paid off. Where did you come up with the name Ear Hustle? What does that mean? Yes. Okay. So I have um, a very good friend, um, Gretchen Hertzberg, and she, this was before I was in San Quentin, and she was working at, um, she was working inside a jail, and she told me about um, when guys are on the phone, um, on the phone, other guys are ear hustling. So she just told me that expression, and I loved it. And I was like, what does that mean? It means like eavesdropping. And that was like 15 years ago. And I just, I just loved the name and it just was always in my mind. And so when we decided we were going to do a podcast, I was just like, we got to call it Ear Hustle because it's a slang about eavesdropping. I heard about it from a prison, uh, from like a you know, jail related, prison related. And it's exactly what we're doing. We are eavesdropping and sharing information. I don't, we didn't even have a second name. We all, remember we, we all came around and we just was just piling them on. Like, what would this be? And I think the one thing we did not want the one thing we didn't want was it to be something prison, you know, yeah, just yeah, yeah. prison or prison yeah. or prison in it or, you know, we didn't want that at all. Um, we just wanted something that would just go into the world and just be on the like, okay, no matter if it's produced in a prison, it's going to be quality. Yeah, it's gonna be We quality. wanted it to be great. And I think there was no other name. I'm curious what the reaction has been from the prison community to your, to the podcast and, 
and do do people give you story ideas or what is that dynamic like? Ah, so the prison population, I would say this, uh, in the beginning, nobody knew what we were cooking up. So it was like, when we used to bring people in, like, hey man, come interview. And some people be like, yeah, some people like, nah. And then I think when our first episodes aired, a lot of the um, people, family were reaching out, hey, are they doing Ear Hustle in San Quentin? And so a lot of people, kids and their family members was coming up to them like, hey man, that's a great show, man. Y'all need to get involved. So we went from probably chasing people uh, to get them on the mic to people coming and basically telling us their life story. And, and that was probably the one thing I'm like, bruh, it's not about your life story. It's just a moment. It's just a moment. Yeah. It's, it's so true. I can think of two things. Um, when you come into San Quentin as, as a volunteer, you have to walk through the yard down to the media lab because the media lab is in the back of the prison. And it probably takes about 15 minutes to walk, maybe, maybe 10, 15 minutes to walk down there. I used to be able to go through there pretty quickly. As your hustle got more and more popular and was heard more and more inside the prison, it would take me like a half hour to get down to the media lab because so many people would stop me to say, you know, tell us their story, they wanted to be in it. And so that, that was a, a sign that we were growing successfully inside the prison for the prison population. And I do remember very specifically early on, a man I didn't know stopped me. And he told me that his daughter was listening and had turned him on to it. And that she was one really proud that he, of it made her one feel like she was understanding his life much better and connecting and that it also made her proud of him that he was in a place where this kind of thing could happen. Even though he hadn't been in an episode, Your Hustle is about trying to not completely take the wall down, but to make it something you can see through and that you can connect through. And the idea that families were connecting through the stories we were telling, just, I don't know, that to me was the best compliment we could ever get. Your life has changed, Erlan, uh, pretty drastically in the last couple of years. You wanna talk about that? Yes, I would say in the last few days, let me see, in the last two days, I was just on with the new DA in Los Angeles. We talking about, you know, the change and how, you know, the uh, formerly incarcerated or the individuals that have lived experience can assist in his transition. Um, yesterday, we did a talk with the California Supreme Court in their, their life, but just in general, um, yes, my life changed because uh, November 18th, no, November 21st, 2018, Governor um, Brown commuted my sentence, which released, which I was released 10 days later. And I, I give a lot of it to the podcast because I know when I walked in there to hear that my sentence was commuted, you know, once they got the, the legalities out the way and giving me that information, you know, uh, the next thing was, we love the podcast, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I think it was like everyone on the call, you know, and I think that um, I believe we did a we we're doing a great service to people that are probably that are marginalized. I believe we're I think I think we, we interviewed um, Governor Brown and I think he said it best. We, we were able to lift the veil of secrecy and allow people in to see what's going on inside their prisons. So I think, it, yes, it definitely changed my life. Um, I have a, 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 a career a skill set. I, I'm, I'm giving back. I'm, I'm doing my best to change things uh, in, in the criminal justice world. So uh, I think if I can repeal California three strikes, that I, I, that'll be everything. 
<laughs> the sentence you were serving was a three strike sentence. I was serving a three strike sentence under the California three strikes law, which um, probably maybe 40,000 other individuals are serving time up under that, whether it's a second strike or a third strike. And I think right now, you know, you have a lot of progressive uh, prosecutors out there that are looking at it like, okay, these enhancements and these, you know, because you have an enhancement for everything. You have a gun enhancement, you have a gang enhancement, you have alternate sentences, you have this. Your, your original sentence might be three years, but the enhancements might have, you might have 60 years, you know? So I think a lot of them are changing that now and I'm definitely uh, on the front line with them. That's great. You talk about a lot of sensitive topics. Are there things that you have not tackled that you are perhaps can't or don't feel like you want to? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky because I think that's where like Lieutenant Robinson, you know, I know at the end he says he approves all our episodes and it's not like that we're being censored or anything, it's, it's nothing like that. It's just that certain things that you may talk about, like say for instance, if we get to talk about gangs and certain things in gangs and certain people get on, that could be detrimental to them while they're serving their time because mm -hmm. they may say something that wasn't acceptable by the gang members and it may be some repercussions. So we have to just be mindful on the things that could, could actually injure someone in prison or outside, outside the gates. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I've really learned um, that there are some topics that just will put other people in a bad place and we have to be really careful of that. I mean, I used to always say to myself, well, I can always leave, I can always walk out and I don't have to go back if something goes south. Not that I would ever want that to happen. And of course now Erlon is out, um, but I would never want the people we talk to to get put in a position where they could be harmed. I mean, I don't think we would recover from that uh, spiritually, emotionally, you know, professionally. So I do think we talk about very difficult subjects. I would like to continue telling more complicated stories um, about people's experience that again aren't about redemption and you know like one of the, actually one of the topics I was thinking about last night Erlon was um, really want to do and it came out of something that you were writing about three strikes a story about the hierarchies of sentencing and how people inside have they could all be serving three strikes but depending on why they have a third strike, they feel either closer or further removed from someone else who's a three striker. So how, how do people inside place judgment on different crimes and different sentences? Um, so something like that, I think is sensitive because people don't really want to talk about it. Um, so I would like to do, I kind of like to push that story a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think so far, the, the two that we've done that was pretty hard was Sorry Me, Nothing and a Trail. You know, um, because you don't know how people are going to receive it. Like um, I, I pay heavy, I pay close attention to when we put stories out, the comments on social media, you know, and that gives me a check on how things are being received, you know, and some people say things that, you know, or, you know, every now and again, you would get one to say, oh, I'm done. You know, it was too hard or, you know, or then you'll get most people would be like, these, these topics need to be explored because how can we understand something if we know nothing about it? We, we're not educated on anything about it. So they appreciate the work that the team does in, in presenting these stories. So Sorry Means Nothing was about sex crime. We wanted to do a story about sex crimes, and, but it ended up really being about sex crimes against children, which, you know, like that is the most difficult topic to talk about. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, um, I think we did a pretty good job with it. I'd actually like to do a follow-up story on that. And then the other one, The Trail, was about a sexual assault, but it was also a lot about race, and that was really difficult, I, I think, because the, I don't know how much we want to give away about the story, but... Race and accountability. It was, a, it was, it was interesting, you know, because we, we uh, let our producer, John Yaya Johnson, who was a part of the original interview inside, and, you know, when I was hearing about it, and, I, and when I heard that when he was doing the original interview that he was in tears. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, you know, me, it, New York would have actually co-hosted this one, but they're on lockdown. So for me to co-host it, it was like, well, Yaya is more, you know, into the story. So it was, yeah. it was and, and it did good. He did, he did great. On that he one. did a great job. Yeah. I think it was probably our most challenging story to date. Your beat is full of such big stories. I mean, life, death, you know, freedom, confinement. Um, there's, there's a lot, there's so much there. So how, I, I just wonder as a producer, what kind of framework you, you use when you're picking, when you're developing episodes? I mean, how does it all evolve? Usually at the end of, or towards the end of each season, we'll sit down and just have a brainstorming session and we'll have a, a whiteboard or something and just throw a gang of ideas out there and then start hashing out those ideas um, and seeing, you know, if it's something that we want to do. And we'll put a lot of them out there and then we'll just start picking the ones that seems very, you know, important or, or seem like we can get something out of it. Yeah, I mean, we start like a funnel and just work our way down. And uh, some of the things that we always look for is we have to have a really, this is bad, we call them the mule. They probably just come up with a better word than that. But we need someone who can tell a story really well. And so there could be a good story, but if the person, if we can't connect with them and they can't, they can't emote, then we can't do the story. So we're always looking for a good storyteller. I personally am always looking for the smaller, like the details. What is a detail that is gonna make a better, a bigger story? So that I'm, that's what I'm always pondering. Um, we we are trying to diversify, meaning we want to get more like get more women in our stories. Um, I personally would like to do more stories about COs and what it's like to work at a prison because I'm interested in the entire entire community of prisons. Um, we try to not repeat ourselves. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot a lot of conversation, uh, and I'm sure just like for anybody, it gets tough. Like you know, a, how are you going to find the good stories? How are you not going to repeat yourself? And how are you going to continue to challenge yourself? And keep listen. I mean, and keep listeners engaged. I mean, we want people to listen to the stories. So, um, where's that hook that's going to want someone that's going to keep somebody coming back? Right. And out of everybody, the COs are the most elusive, hardest. But you talk about the stories about the COs and the relationships between the COs and the guys are. It's so interesting because it's so not straightforward as you would think. It's very complicated. Up until I got to San Quentin. I had never really seen like a CO and a prisoner, you know, dap, shake hands, you know, none of that, you know, um, because it's like a, like the episode is us and them, you know, um, the, the people in blue are like from another planet, you know, it's, it's like it's the, the respect is totally different. You know, it's like some COs may want to talk to you, but they, they, they fear the ridicule they get from their colleagues, you know, mm -hmm. or, 
you know, the, the, the number one thing is inmate lover. You're an inmate lover. And, you know, that that's their mindset. You know, again, it's, I, I said we said us and them. I think it's us versus them. No. I, I've heard this from so many people that San Quentin is really different. I haven't spent too much time in other prisons. So um, I see more of a willingness of some COs to cross that line and to have, uh, you know, have relationships that are not over familiar. But everything I, but it is really unusual, right, Erlon? That just isn't. I think the thing about San Quentin, and it, it's, it's been years, but San Quentin is a prison that it houses death row. You know, it used to house level four uh, prisoners. So the respect was different. And now it's a level two. It's been a level two for a while. Hmm. You still have a lot of those same officers that are there. And, you know, they, they, they treat individuals with humanity. You know, um, not all are humanitarians, but most of them are, um, are definitely from a different cloth than the average, average correctional officer. Because at the end of the day, you, you have San Quentin is in the middle of a gang of different cities. It's in the middle of, you know, you have San Francisco near Richmond, Oakland. You have all these cities where individuals come in a lot. You have a lot of volunteers that frequent this prison, you know, so that's why it's a little different. You have other prisons that are four hours away from towns, you know, three hours away from towns and just, you never see them. So yeah. just, you know, people don't go there and those prisons don't have the same opportunities. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I believe it's something like 3,000 volunteers go in and out of the prison every year. That's a huge number. Um, right. and, and it makes a difference because people are used to seeing outsiders come in. It means the people, the guys that are incarcerated are used to it, the COs, the administration, and I think it changes the feeling there. I remember guys coming to San Quentin, and Erlon, tell me if this is BS or not, who are coming from higher level prisons and being like, I haven't seen volunteers come into a prison. And really, like, it, they were actually uncomfortable. I, I mean, and, and, and this is the reason why, I think, in a way. San Quentin is an old, it was, it was built in 19, 1852. So you have a lot of space. When they start building prisons with the crime and punishment standpoint, there was no spaces allotted for places for volunteers. You probably may get the, the, the school on the weekend or the nights because in the daytime it's schools and you may have that little spot. But San Quentin has a gang of spots where individuals can congregate with volunteers and, and, and you can have a college, you can have everything. But again, the, the newer style design of prisons don't, don't, don't have room for that. I mentioned that I've done a bunch of reporting behind bars and um, I've gotten this criticism before, so I want to ask you about it. Do you ever get criticism from people, either individuals or groups, like victims' rights groups, who say, how come you're, you know, doing these stories and making these guys look like heroes and glorifying prison and people behind bars and, you know, who cares about the victims and this is inappropriate? Those kinds of attacks, does that happen? Okay, when we started the podcast, I was so prepared for that. I really expected we were going to get a ton of criticism. And it just oddly has not happened. Yes, we get the odd person, but it is a tiny percentage, I mean, I, I couldn't even say what percentage is, it's so small. Um, mostly what we get are people who will write and say, I thought I would feel this way. I thought like I wouldn't want to hear these stories. I'm, I'm a throw away the keyer. I'm super conservative. And yet hearing these stories has been really helpful and it's helped expand the way I think. So um, I, I also, I care a lot about victims and I never would want victims to think we, we have um, 
we're cavalier about that. And so again, I would like to do more stories that talk about about being a, a, a victim. But we've been, I don't know if, if the word is fortunate, but we have received so little criticism like that. Um, can you, I mean, every once in a while, Erlon, but can you? Th- so, what the, you know, what I always tell people is like, you know, um, when a person goes to prison, you know, the last image usually people have of them is in the courtroom, is them in their entire criminality when they're in that criminal mindset. But people don't pay attention that, you know, by the time we get to a person or we talk to a person, it's 15, 20 years later. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and this is a totally different person. Um, and one thing we always try to do with our stories is we never try to tell people what to think. Um, and so I'm hoping that people hear that and it allows them if they want to be angry, if they want to, you know, if they want to connect, like they can have all of those feelings because we're not saying this is how you have to feel about a story. Usually we don't, we don't, outside of, you know, those, those uh, stories we spoke on, we usually don't speak on people crimes. Yeah, that's the only you know, way. It's usually just something that's unrelated to the crime. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things that early on we was like, well, you know, when people come on here, we don't, we're not going to say, oh, this convicted murderer or this person, you know, we didn't want to, you know, identify people by their crimes. Yeah. You know, we just wanted to just tell a story. And if the story has something to do with their crime, then we would definitely say that. Like our last story was all about this guy's crime. Yeah. And that's rare. That is rare for us. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we're, we're, we interview people that have committed all kinds of crimes, so anybody could do the research, right? I mean, for like, right. example, what happened to you, anybody could do the research and be like, wait a minute. I think when we did the one about death row, I mean, you know, it was like, they you on know, death row, we really don't have to say anything about any crime. We don't want to yeah. offend anybody. You never want to offend anybody because you have to always, in your mind, think that, you know, how would this be received? Yeah. And I think that we, we again, we, we, we speak on totally different topics from what they were convicted of. We just speak yeah. on life inside prison. And that's the reality of inside prison. You're going to have individuals that's been convicted of some heinous crimes, maybe. Yeah. Um, but um, do that define them for the remainder of their life? It, it'll be there, but I don't believe it defines who that person is. Your beat is an area that is ripe for reform, but yet you guys do a really good job of focusing on the character, focusing on the story and not on the issue. But yet that is such a big part of this world. How, how do you guys approach that? You want to start or you want me? You start my friend. Okay. So um, I would say this, yes, we do not, Initially, of course, I I was in prison under the three strike law. So I wanted every story to be about the three strike law person, you know, but we couldn't do it like that. That, You know, you don't want to. And I used to to get from people like, you know, they appreciate us not hammering certain things over the head. You know, we're not hammering this over the head or not going this way. We always keep it straight down the middle. So when it came time to do the story about the three strikes, we just really had to figure out how to frame it. And we were able to get a guy named Curtis Roberts uh, in our episode Left Behind, who was a white guy that received 50 years to life for snatching two $20 bills out of a cash register. So, you know, if, if, if people wouldn't be enraged by just that, then I didn't know, you know, what I could present to them. You know, maybe jaywalking, 50 to life, I don't know. But, um, and, and, and that story 
even though it was about a little of three strikes, it was more about other things that, you know, affected him while he was in prison. So uh, I think it was just really finding a vehicle to, you know, push that. Well, I guess two things, if I can remember. One is we've always said, like, we're, we're not about policy. And so we want to tell human stories. We want to have a main character. Also, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to be in my lane, which my, my background is as a visual artist. And um, I'm always looking for more abstract ways to, to talk about bigger subjects. And so uh, that's what I brought to this project. I wasn't trained as a journalist. I, I want to do what I know best, which is storytelling. And I think when you do something that you know, that you connect with and you f feel good about, you do your best job. If I tried to tell stories that were from a different, uh, I don't know, that was more about policy, I wouldn't, I would be terrible at it. I would be terrible. And so you would feel that in authenticity in the stories. And so both Erlan and I, and I think everyone on the Ear Hustle team, but I'm going to talk about Erlan and I, really work from the heart and we stay in our lane. And we're pretty good at our lane and we know that. And so we, we just keep pushing ourselves to get better with what we know how to do. And also there's this, there are just the kinds of stories that I really enjoy. I love learning about people. I love ear hustling and peeping and, and um, getting people to open up. And so I think that's, you know, that's part of the reason why we do ear hustle stories that way. And I think I leave that other kind of, um, other kind of way of telling stories to people who can do it way better than we can do it. Thank you so much to Erlon Woods and Nigel Poor for joining us. And congratulations to all the 2022 DuPont finalists just announced. You can listen to Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for On Assignment this month. This episode, like all our episodes, was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. And it was produced by J-School grad Emily Pisacreta. Our sound engineers were A.J. Mangone and Ariana Sullivan. And we also had assistance from our program administrator, Melanie Marge. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. We'd also like to thank our three DuPont fellows for their support, Jaden Edison, Emily Russell, and Evan Solis. Until next time. <laughs>